Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At Mysteries at Midnight, be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 18. The Discovery of Witchcraft. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week we heard about the deaths of Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury, and Henry Frederick, Prince of Wales and heir to the English, Scottish and Irish thrones. Salisbury was one of, if not the single most competent minister James would ever have, and to a certain extent this competence was what killed him. He took on three of the great offices of state and was reluctant to delegate to his subordinates, and this relentless workload only exacerbated his ill health. He would remain in favour until the end, and he was truly irreplaceable. Prince Henry was only 18, and was a healthy and active teenager, yet a sickness, possibly typhoid, although this is still debated, killed him in a matter of days. Prince Henry at least had a younger brother, but his death was still devastating for the family. This week was intended to be looking at the fallout of the death of the royal prince and how English colonists and merchant companies were expanding James's dominion overseas. But I've spent the last few weeks writing a thesis chapter and this week has been entirely devoted to it because that has to come first. This will happen again in the future because there are only so many hours in the day and there will be times when there is no episode at all. But today is not that day, gentle listener. I didn't have time to plan and write an entirely new script, but I was able to repurpose a few scripts from the history of witchcraft. In fact, one of the scripts written more than a year ago alludes to Pax Britannica in a promise to return to English colonisation in a completely different context. So there you go, it was foreshadowed. So today's episode will be looking at one of the options that my House of Lords voted on a few weeks ago the king's relationship with witchcraft after becoming king of England and Ireland. We have touched on this lightly when discussing his marriage, 
He suspected that Danish and Scottish witches had collaborated to see him lost at sea, along with Queen Anne. What followed was a highly publicised witch trial, but it was not the only one in Scotland in the 1590s, and in 1597, James published a treatise on the subject, Demonology. There is a significant contrast between the James of the 1590s and how he would rule in England. Because, despite initially overseeing the enactment of an even stricter Witchcraft Act in 1604 that made English laws match the Scottish 1563 Act, James's accession to the English throne was not the start of wild witch hunts south of the border. The Witchcraft Statute of 1604 seems to be, at first glance, similar to the pre-existing Elizabethan Act of 1563, but there are some new additions and changes to the wording. For starters, a new offence was added, that of grave robbery, with the intent to use the body parts of cadavers in spells. This was punishable by death. The punishments were heightened for activities already criminalised under the Elizabethan Act, such as injuring a person or property with sorcery. Under Elizabeth, only your second offence would warrant execution. Under James, the first conviction for magical injury was a death sentence. Where Elizabethan crimes warranted death in the first instance, the 1604 Act somehow managed to make the ultimate penalty even harsher. Where someone convicted of murder through magical means would have been executed during Elizabeth's reign, James extended the charge to, quote, aiders, abettors, and counsellors. Intending, but failing to injure, kill, or seduce a person through magical means faced a similar punishment under both acts, that of one year imprisonment. But on the second conviction, James's act called for death, while Elizabeth's demanded life imprisonment. Professor Alan McFarlane does point out that the conditions in English jails at the time were so poor that imprisonment was often just as lethal as a death sentence, especially for elderly or infirm convicts. Similarities between the acts are common, though, and it isn't the case that the 1604 Act massively expanded the crimes and punishment related to witchcraft. For example, just as under the Elizabethan Act, spouses and heirs of the convicted largely had their goods specifically protected under the law when felons commonly had their property confiscated. Both acts specified that those subject to execution lost the rights of clergy and sanctuary, the two ways to either avoid punishment or at least have it lessened somewhat. And in the general pardons dispatched by both James and Elizabeth, witchcraft convicts were accepted from such mercy. The Jacobean Act has been traditionally seen as the superstitious James enforcing the standards he was used to in Scotland, and there's certainly an element to this effect. Yet, James was not the zealot he had been just ten years earlier. He had mellowed somewhat, and gained a certain level of scepticism. There were still hardliners in his government, most notably Sir Edward Coke and Sir Edmund Anderson, but the Anglican Church was in the midst of its own controversy over witchcraft, particularly over the methods used by both Catholic recalcitrants and Puritan preachers to root out the devil. The king's growing scepticism can be seen from a number of different ways. James took a personal interest in England's witchcraft trials over the next two decades, 
And yet, after the king personally examined both the supposed witches and their accusers, many of the accused were acquitted or pardoned. James's court also included a number of notable sceptics, who surely played some role in the king's changing views. Samuel Harsnett, the future Archbishop of York, had been a relentless critic of the Puritan exorcist John Darrell, and Harsnett would go on to expose a cabal of Jesuits who had been conducting their own spiritual purgings in 1603. Francis Bacon, James's Lord Chancellor, would write that witches themselves are imaginative and believe oft-times they do what they do not. John Florio, reader for Queen Anne, translated the essays of Michel de Montaigne soon after their move to England. Montaigne was highly critical of witch hunts. In 1616, Ben Jonson would publish his play, The Devil is an Ass, which treats the devil with scorn and mocks those who believe in his powers on earth. In his sight are witch hunters and magistrates that jump at the chance to hang their suspects. One character, a businessman heavily in debt, tricks his creditors by pretending to be possessed, while the devil himself appears in the play, gets outwitted by the humans, and is then arrested and sent to Newgate Prison. James was Johnson's patron, and it is highly likely that by this point, James would be laughing at the naive and gullible magistrates just as much as the next guy. Now, this is making a number of assumptions. Holmes argues that Florio must have been in agreement with Montaigne in order to translate his work, and that he was in enough favour with James to speak his mind. I'm not convinced by this argument. Florio may have been commissioned to translate the essays, so his personal feelings would have had no role to play. Montaigne wrote many essays, and it's highly unlikely that Florio was in agreement with all his ideas, so to single out his views on witchcraft seems a bit odd. Also impossible to know is whether Florio, if he had chosen to translate the essays because of his firm agreement with their contents, would have raised them with James. James was scholarly, yes, but he could already read French, so there was no great revelation from an English translation. If he wanted to read Montaigne, he could read Montaigne in its original script. Yet, James would nevertheless show a growing level of scepticism over the course of his English reign. And by the way, I am of course probably pronouncing Montaigne completely incorrectly. We'll begin our examination of Jacobean trials with the case of Elizabeth Jackson in 1603. Now, this is in the final years of the reign of Elizabeth, but it's helpful to illustrate the value of pamphlets for our understanding of Elizabethan and Jacobean society. For this, I'm primarily using Stephen Bradwell's pamphlet, Mary Glover's Late Woeful Case. Mary Glover was a young girl, who had visited Elizabeth Jackson's house on an errand for her mother. Unfortunately for young Mary, Jackson held a grudge against the girl for, quote, discovering to one of her mistresses a certain fashion of her subtle and importunate begging. Closing the door, Jackson trapped Mary in the house and threatened her for over an hour, loud enough that many neighbours could hear Jackson's threats, including Mary's uncle, Sheriff Glover. Sheriff wasn't his name, that was his job. Eventually, Mary was allowed to leave, but when Mary's mother, Gothrin, heard of the verbal abuse her daughter had gone through, she confronted Jackson. Jackson 
then denies ever having threatened the girl, and is so enraged by the accusation that she threatens Guthrun. Quote, You have not crosses now, but I hope you shall have as many crosses as ever fell upon women and children. Can you guess what happened then? Well, Mary Glover, the little poppet, fell ill. Described as fits, Mary remained afflicted for over three months. They seem to have begun after Jackson visited the Glover household, purportedly to see Guthrun. When Mary told her that, sorry, mum's not home, Jackson left. But when Mary went back to her food, her throat had become so swollen that she couldn't eat. Jackson, probably feeling guilty for shouting at the girl, if indeed she had, or at least taking pity on the sick child, sent her an orange. Now, I'm under the impression that oranges were quite the luxury in England at this time, and Mary certainly treats it as such. Instead of, say, eating it, she instead spends the day holding it and smelling it, making the most of this sweet treat. Unfortunately for Jackson, her benevolent nature goes awry when Mary's, quote, hand, arm, and whole side was, quote, deprived of feeling and moving. Things only got worse when, on two occasions, Jackson happened upon Mary in public, whereupon Mary collapsed in a fit. Following this, numerous witnesses are gathered around Mary, and Jackson is brought before her. When she is, Mary has another fit, and an eerie voice sounds from her nostrils, Hang her! Hang her! Among the witnesses was an alderman, a knight, and a noblewoman. When Jackson appears surprised and shocked by the girl's reaction, quote, all present believe she is lying. Now, a few of these events have logical causes. In the case of the orange, it's possible that this was just a case of a young girl, sick with some kind of fever, being so exhausted that the repeated use of her arm was too much. The fits could either be staged, as it wouldn't be the first time, or last time, that a child is coerced into something like this, or a genuine mental reaction to seeing the woman who, she fervently believes, wishes her harm. The spectral voice, of course, could be Mary repeating what her parents told her to say. The crowd was not on her side, and expected the worst of Jackson. Yet, Jackson was not alone. The Bishop of London, Richard Bancroft, was said to be sympathetic to the suspected witch, possibly as the policy of the Anglican Church regarding witchcraft was so heated. Bancroft suggested Jackson petition the College of Physicians. If I'm reading the pamphlet correctly, three physicians had been involved in the case so far, and had accused Jackson of causing Mary's symptoms. When the college examined these physicians, they found their procedures wanting, and so Jackson gained the college's support. The Recorder of London, Sir John Crook, was sent to validate Mary's fits, once having Jackson enter the room as normal, and the other time dressing Jackson as a, quote, anonymous woman. Despite this, in both cases, Mary falls into a fit, although one has to wonder how much effort went into this. There is no mention of having a lineup or having multiple women. So it's possible that Jackson was brought in, Mary reacted, Jackson was taken out and given a new hat, and then brought back in. Mary could have easily recognised her suspected assailant, or at the very least deduced that maybe this strange, anonymous woman was the same woman as earlier. In either case, Crook was suspicious, and had Jackson repeat the Lord's Prayer. But Jackson 
was unable to even speak the line, deliver us from evil. Well, that's not good. Jackson was then thrown into Newgate Prison to await trial, with Crook convinced she's guilty. At the trial, Mary again suffered a fit from Jackson's presence. The doctors who had been criticised by the college testified that they believed Mary to be bewitched, and that Jackson had, quote, marks not likely caused by disease. While a preacher, Lewis Hughes, recounted how he had been struck dumb by Jackson from a single glance, after admonishing her for her coarse language. Jackson's neighbours testified against her too, having heard her argument with Guthrie and having similarly suffered when they chose the side of the Glovers in this spat. Bancroft defended Jackson, claiming that Mary Glover is pretending to be bewitched, as do two physicians from the college who dispute the previous testimony from the doctors. Despite this, Lord Chief Justice Anderson, who was judging the case, was against her. This is the trial where he famously decried that, quote, The land is full of witches, they abound in all places. I have hanged five or six and twenty of them. There is no man here can speak more of them than myself. Few of them would confess it, some of them did, against whom the proofs were nothing so manifest as against those that denied it. Anderson strongly hints to the jury that they should find Jackson guilty, and they do. Under the Elizabethan Act, because no one had been killed and it was her first conviction, Jackson was spared the noose. Instead, she was sentenced to a year's imprisonment with quarterly sessions in the pillory to be abused by the crowds. However, Jackson, through her powerful supporters in the College of Physicians and the Bishop of London, quote, probably received a royal pardon. She certainly escaped punishment, end quote. In the trial of Elizabeth Jackson, we can see the clash between witch hunters like Anderson and moderates such as Bancroft, men who saw different threats to the social order. Anderson saw witchcraft as a clear and present danger that could be fought, but Bancroft and his fellows in the Anglican Church saw the social strife inherent in the actions of the witchfinders, both of the Puritan and Catholic kind, as well as from their allies in the judiciary. So in the aftermath of the arrival of the witch-hunting, demonologist, scholar King James, and the passing of the 1604 Witchcraft Act, you might expect that the likes of Bancroft would find themselves out in the cold. How could they continue to oppose witch trials when the man at the top, God's vice-regent on earth, was a bloodthirsty witch-hunter? Well, it became quite clear that James's thirst had been sufficiently quenched by the time the case of Anne Gunter came about. In 1605, in the small town of South Morton, which was then in Berkshire, there was a young girl of 14, or alternatively 20, the source is Dither, called Anne Gunter. Now, young Anne had begun to vomit with worrying regularity and with worrying contents, most notably pins and needles, and other small items that had no right to be vomited up by anyone, let alone a child. Anne had been bewitched, and she pointed the accusatory finger at three local women. One, Agnes Pepwell, fled the village, while the two others, her illegitimate daughter and the thoroughly unpopular Elizabeth Gregory, were arrested. Now, the women were prosecuted, but two of them would be acquitted by the end of the trial. 
Not content with this, Anne, supported by her father, Brian, would not let it go. Eventually, Anne was placed in the custody of the Bishop of Salisbury, Henry Cotton, who was sceptical of her claims. He purposefully left a number of specially marked pins around the household. Lo and behold, when the sickness again struck young Anne, the bishop's pins were used as a prop in her performance. This is when Brian, Anne's father, made a crucial error. He had heard about James's hatred of witchcraft, everyone had, and believed he could be convinced of the truth of his daughter's bewitchment. So in August, he travelled to Oxford University to meet the king, who was making a special visit to the university, and he brought Anne. However, James was less gullible than his reputation suggested, and much more interested in exposing fraudulent accusations. Young Anne was put first into the care of Richard Bancroft, now Archbishop of Canterbury, who then passed her to the custody of Samuel Harsnett, the sceptic we discussed earlier, as having publicly condemned both Puritan and Catholic exorcists. Harsnett found the truth. Anne confessed to having invented her bewitchment, and that her father Brian had coached her on what to do, how to act, and who to blame. The Gunters and the Gregories had been in a feud since 1598, when Brian killed two members of the Gregory family at a football match. What followed was a first. The Gunters were brought before the Court of Star Chamber on charges of fraud, for fabricating claims of witchcraft. More interestingly, this trial was headed by the Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, the advocate of witch trials that we've spoken of previously. Roughly 60 witnesses were questioned. Brian Gunter used his connections at Oxford to have several leading academics testify in his favour, including a doctor who would become Shakespeare's son-in-law. Historian James Sharp, who has done a wonderful amount of research on this case, has discovered the social foundations of these accusations. He used wills, manorial records, and the local church records to discover that the village's lord was rarely there and so it was instead run by five farming families, and the Gregories were one of them. The Gunters were interlopers, arriving in 1587, and Brian immediately made himself known as difficult to live with. He had gone to court against the Lord, and had already found himself in Star Chamber, after the five families of Moreton complained to the king about his violent behaviour. After this, Brian would again be in the Star Chamber, facing accusations of assault against a vicar and his wife. He was in his 80s at this point. So the man was difficult. Court records of Anne's account suggest that he was no better to his family. Anne was drugged, beaten, threatened, sworn to secrecy over the ploy, and dragged kicking and screaming out of a neighbour's house where she'd fled before being beaten in the street. All of this, recounted in detail in front of the King, the Attorney General, the Bishop of Salisbury, Francis Stuart, and countless visiting nobles, clergy, and gentry, all attracted by the spectacle of the trial. Sadly, Professor Sharp was unable to find out the result of this trial. We know that Brian Gunter returned to Moreton, where he would later attack the vicar and find his way back to court, and there were hints that Anne found love during this ordeal, marrying, and, romantically enough, with King James providing the dowry. We can but hope that she got a happy ending. 
It is possible that this brazen example of fraudulent witchcraft accusations was a watershed moment for both James and the witch-hunt advocates in his court. The county of Lancashire had a reputation for being a superstitious backwater in the first decades of the 17th century. Both the public and official minds of the capital viewed the entire region as steeped in superstitious Catholicism and rife with dissidents. Perhaps that's why Lancashire vies with Essex for the title of England's witch craze heartland. Lancashire would host two of the most famous trials in English history, with a number of suspects and executed not being surpassed until the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and the Witchfinder General. On the 21st of March, 1612, a man known as John Law had a dispute with Alison Device, apparently due to refusing to sell her some pins, and he promptly fell into an illness that seemed magically induced. A Justice of the Peace, Roger Newell, arrived on the 30th and took statements from Alison, her mother, Elizabeth, her brother James, and John Law's son, Abraham, who accused Alison of being responsible for his father's illness. Noel was an experienced JP, at 62 years of age, with many years of experience under his belt. He was also an established local landowner, with significant family connections, and was a devout Protestant. Noel was vital in the process of these trials, although it is unclear whether he was a particularly strong believer in either witchcraft or the need to root it out. As we shall see, the wave of accusations was strong, and it is possible that he became a firm believer after a seemingly endless queue of witnesses came forth. His local connections may have provided a motive for going further than he would otherwise, but I'm getting ahead of myself. On the 2nd of April, Noel examined Elizabeth Device's mother, Alison Device's grandmother, after hearing reports that she, too, was a suspect. Elizabeth Southerns, also known as Old Demdike, was 80 years old at the time. Noel also took the time to question Anne Whittle, also known as Chattox, as well as three witnesses. Because there are a lot of names going forward, I'll stick to Old Demdike for Elizabeth Southerns, the grandmother of Alison and mother of Elizabeth, and Chattox for Anne Whittle. Apparently, the nickname Demdike derived from Demon Woman, so that might suggest a certain amount of hostility towards her in the community. Alison, under interrogation, told Noel that Old Demdike had told her to, quote, let a devil or familiar appear to her, and that she this examinate would let him suck at some part of her, and she might have and do what she would. On the 4th of April, Noel had Alison, Old Demdike, Chattox and Chattox's daughter, Anne Redfern, arrested and sent to Lancaster Castle to await trial. At the same time this was happening, give or take a couple of days, in the neighbouring county of York, a woman called Janet Preston was tried and acquitted for the murder of a child through sorcery. This may seem like an odd thing to bring up, but it will be relevant later. Less than a week after their arrest, on the 10th of April, so Good Friday, there was a witch sabbat at Malkin Tower, the home of Old Demdike. Among those present was Alison's brother James, and here they planned to break their family and friends out of Lancaster Castle through magic and gunpowder. On the 27th, 
Noel found out about this sabot, although there are two potential stories. The first is that Noel heard through the grapevine that word got out from the ten people there. The other, advocated in Robert Poole's book, The Lancashire Witches, Histories and Stories, is that the devices willingly, or as willing as possible in the circumstances, told Noel about the Sabbath themselves. However he found out, and whether or not there is any truth to it, this event implicated a number of locals as witches and convinced Noel and his colleagues that they had stumbled upon a serious coven of witches. The devices remained in custody for another month, whereupon Chattox and James admitted to a collection of officials, namely the coroner of the castle, the mayor of Lancaster, and another justice of the peace, that they were, indeed, witches. On the 19th of May, Chattox confessed to making a pact with the devil, who had appeared to her in the likeness of a man, who convinced her to trade her soul for earthly powers. As part of the bargain, the devil demanded to suckle on Chattox near the ribs, while a creature in the likeness of a spotted dog appeared to act as her familiar. I'm going to quote directly from Poole here because he words it perfectly. The evidence of the children, Janet and James Device, was vital in initiating the wider allegations of witchcraft, and a reading of the examinations published by Thomas Potts in his account of the trials shows that by this stage, suspects were clearly beginning to panic and accuse each other. The investigations had reached critical mass, and neighbours came forward in large numbers to tell the authorities of acts of witchcraft which had occurred sometimes many years before, their statements sometimes revealing how witchcraft suspicions were enmeshed in local feuds and rivalries. The Thomas Potts, who Dr. Poole refers to, is the author of an account of the trial, which provides much of the information we know about these events. However, as we will see, Potts was not a neutral observer, and his work was intended to push a particular narrative of events. The accused remained imprisoned in Lancaster Castle until August, when the Assizes were held. In the meantime, Janet Preston was, again, accused of murder through witchcraft, but this time found guilty and executed on the 27th of July. Jonathan Lumby, in his book, The Lancashire Witch Craze, suggests that instead of witchcraft or murder, her true crime was to have been the mistress of the late Thomas Lister, whose son did not take kindly to his father having another woman and held a strong dislike of her. It was only three months prior that Preston had been found not guilty of murder, although she did make the mistake of visiting the Lancashire witches during her time at liberty. Then, Thomas Lister Jr. accused her of murdering his father five years previously, and the prosecuting magistrate was his father-in-law. When the Assizes came around, they were headed by the judges of Sir Edward Bromley and Sir James Altham. Bromley's conduct is, in the words of Dr. Poole, quote, problematic. In the aftermath of these trials, Bromley would go so far as to commission Potts to publish a thoroughly legitimising account of his actions. The events in York, as well as the reports they had been regularly receiving from Noel, had prepared them for the next stop on their circuit, Lancaster. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. 
topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The trials of the witches in Lancaster occurred over the 18th and 19th of August. Earlier, I mentioned Alan McFarlane's point that imprisonment was often practically the same as a death sentence. Well, so it held true for old Demdike. She had entered Lancaster Castle dungeons 80 years old, and she was dead before her trial. Chattox, Elizabeth, and James Device, and Anne Redfern were tried on the first day, with all but Redfern being found guilty. On the second day, the remaining suspects were all tried under the 1604 Witchcraft Act. The judges apparently wanting a do-over, Redfern was retried, and this time the correct verdict was handed down. Guilty. The same verdict awaited everyone else. In total, Alice Nutter, John and Jane Bullcock, Catherine Hewitt, Isabel Roby, Mattox, Mattox's daughter Anne Redfern, and the Device family, Alice and Device, her mother Elizabeth, her brother James, were all condemned to death by hanging. Ten of them were executed the following day on Lancaster Moor, while Margaret Pearson was convicted on non-capital charges and so faced a year of imprisonment with quarterly pillory days. Five others were charged, but later acquitted, but we know very little about them. Even with witchcraft being a capital crime, the execution of so many in such a short space of time was unusual. In modern parlance, the optics were bad, especially with a king on the throne who had seemingly contradicted his own reputation by pursuing fraudulent witchcraft convictions. 
The most effective way to manage the public reaction was to control the story, and for that the judges, Bromley and Altham, commissioned the clerk of the Assizes, Thomas Potts, to transform his trial notes into a pamphlet. Intended to justify their actions, the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster meant that these trials were the most famous of their kind in England for decades, possibly until the time of the Witchfinder General. Simultaneously with the Pendle trials, a case was built against eight people based on the testimony of a young child, 14-year-old Grace Sauerbutz. Sauerbutz had told the JPs, and then later Bromley, that the accused had murdered a toddler and then eaten it, physically abused her, tried to make her commit suicide, taking her to a sabbat where she danced, ate, and had sex with four demons. In the face of this graphic testimony, Bromley threw the case out. Five of the eight accused were immediately released without trial upon his arrival, while the other three were acquitted after Sauerbutz admitted that she had invented the claims. Robert Poole, in his Lancashire Witches, suggests that the Lancaster Trials in 1612 can show us the differing ideas of what constituted witchcraft to peasants and to judicial officials. The Pendle Trials that led to the deaths of Chattox and the Devices were centred on the action of Maleficium, as described in the 1604 Act. Whereas Sauerbutt's claims of transforming into animals and the cannibalism of infants were extraordinary and grounded in superstition, and so Bromley's scepticism was recognisable by his contemporaries as sensible. But where could a young girl learn these ridiculous superstitions? Of course, it was the papists, quote. The wench had nothing to say, but her master told her nothing of this. In the end, some that were present told his lordship the truth, and the prisoners informed him how she went to learn with one... Thompson, a seminary priest, who had instructed and taught her this accusation against them, because they were once obstinate papists, and now came to church. Here is the discovery of this priest, and of his whole practice. In other words, a local Jesuit priest was angry at a number of former Catholics who had begun to attend Anglican services, and convinced Sauerbutz to make her accusations against them. The account of the Salmsbury trial, as it came to be known based on the origins of the accused, was a helpful contrast to the Pendle trial. With this, Potts shows that not only are his patrons reasonable and appropriately sceptical, thereby implying that the Pendle convictions were not a case of overzealousness, but also scoring political points by taking shots at the ever-present bogeyman of the Jesuits. This is only one of the checkboxes that Potts made sure to tick, in his wonderful discovery. The 1612 trials were highly controversial, not just in Lancashire itself, but more worryingly for the judges themselves, in London and in the court of James. James had, after all, shown a remarkable scepticism towards English witch trials. The judges were working to enforce the king's peace, his peace. The problem was, as confusing as the king's attitude and beliefs towards witchcraft are to us today, with the benefit of hindsight and a range of sources, it would have been possibly more confusing for his subjects. In Jacobean England, the travelling judges were briefed on the intended policies of Whitehall before they were dispatched to their designated jurisdictions. 
Now, whether or not witchcraft was specifically mentioned to the Lancashire witches, none can say. However, where James was inconsistent on witchcraft, he was very clear on religious conformity. And so it's likely that the crackdown on heresy was part of the judge's royal charge. It is also entirely possible that Bromley and Oltham were as contemptuous of superstitious, popish, backwards Lancashire as any other sophisticated Londoner. Sorry to my Lancashire listeners. However, even with a charge to crack down on heresy, or even explicitly to root out witchcraft as per the 1604 Act, in the words of Pumphrey, to be the first judge to hang a coven of people accused of making diabolic compacts was a risky career move. With this risky career move done, and word of the mass execution filtering through the country, let's take a look at how the wonderful discovery depicts the events. We will start with Alice Nutter. Nutter was the only suspect noted as being wealthy. Potts describes her as, quote, a rich woman, had a great estate, and children of good hope. In the common opinion of the world, of good temper, free from envy or malice. Nutter was not among the expected suspects in an English witchcraft trial. By far the most common sort of people facing trial for maleficium were just that, the common sort, poor and vulnerable members of the community, often widows, usually with reputations for both spitefulness and magical ability. Eventually, some kind of social strife would trigger an accusation, and the weight of this reputation would hang around the neck of the accused until it was followed by a pillory or a rope. So when there were exceptions to this rule, it aroused a special interest and greater scepticism from the public. Potts seems to be aware of the danger, and so takes the time to defend the actions of his patrons. Great was the care and pains of his lordship to make trial of the innocence of this woman as shall appear unto you upon the examination of Janet Device in open court at the time of her arraignment and trial, by an extraordinary means of trial to mark her out from the rest. Here, Potts expresses the lengths to which Bromley and Altham went to assure that even this seemingly upstanding member of society was guilty. The judges arranged an identity parade, and brought in Nutter's accuser, the young Janet Device, pointing out Nutter from the row. Bromley then gave Janet a false name, only for the girl to decline to accuse the fake-named woman. This, frankly, bizarre charade is held up as a counter to the Salmsbury trials, and the fake Sauerbutz accusations for, quote, This could be no forged or false accusation, but the very act of God to discover her. Stephen Pumphrey and Marion Gibson both thoroughly dissect the wonderful discovery in their chapters of Poole's Lancashire Witches. Thomas Potts was the Assizes' clerk, certainly, but he was far from neutral, and he was not interested in presenting a balanced or particularly accurate account of the trial. His job was to craft a narrative that would both appeal to readers as well as portray the trials of the August Lancashire Assizes in a positive light. To this end, Potts rearranged the order that testimony and evidence was given, ignored important aspects of legal procedure, portrayed written affidavits as spoken testimony, and edited the speeches of the judges to improve their readability. It isn't that the discovery was fantastical or ill-intended. Rather, it is, in the words of Gibson, an account obviously published to display the shining efficiency and justice of the legal system. 
Potts repeatedly recounts how the defendants made use of image magic. Image magic has been a staple of Elizabethan witch fears for decades, where an effigy or tablet with the name of the target was damaged or otherwise soiled, in order to cause the subject physical or mental ailments. Queen Elizabeth had been targeted in a similar way, with an effigy marked Elizabeth buried in a midden heap along the route of her progress. The text also depicts a trial where witch sabbats made their first appearance in English courts, but Malcolm Gaskell argues that this owes more to the wonderful discovery seeking to appeal to the authority of James, both legal and demonological, than anything to do with the defendants themselves. The wonderful discovery is remarkable in the way that it emulates James's demonology to a T, and this is certainly deliberate. It transformed the witches from localised, maleficium-wielding terrors of the community to Sabbath-attending, diabolic servants more in line with continental theories and those written in the demonology. This had the effect of not only pandering to James's own writings, but also escalating the threat posed by the witches and going some way to justify their mass hanging. Pumphrey also compares the arguments found in both James's treaties and in the Discovery, and he finds five parallels that were almost certainly deliberately intended. The first was James's division of witches into the rich and poor, who the devil tempted in different ways. We alluded to these differences earlier with Nutter, where the rich were convinced to serve the devil for more malicious reasons like revenge or spite, while the poor are promised worldly riches. In the discovery, Potts describes the different motivations with almost exactly the same words as James did in the demonology. What a coincidence. The second ripoff, I mean element of the trial that was inspired by King James's illuminating treaties, was how the devil revealed himself to his future servants. Demonology described three stages. First, the devil appears as a disembodied voice or as a normal person when the target is alone. The next time, the devil concludes his pact and places, quote, his mark upon some secret place of their body. And at the third meeting, he starts to fulfill his part of the bargain. Lo and behold, the four confessions of Demdike, Chattox, James, and Alison all fit this pattern very closely. In Pumphrey's words, this is extraordinary, given that diabolism and pacts were not part of Pendle popular beliefs. That isn't my sarcasm, that's Pumphrey's. The third is found in the treatment of Sabbaths. Now, Sabbaths were a central aspect of elite demonological theory, and it is likely that elements of this highbrow theology made its way into popular discourse. The problem was, as James argued, since only witches were in attendance at a Sabbath, only witches could give evidence about it. Conveniently enough, the Malkin Tower Sabbat was a central part of James Device's testimony, at which point Potts quotes word for word from the demonology. Here, Potts returns to the testimony of Sauerbutz, which told of baby heating, sexual abuse, and night flying. This was the testimony thrown out by Bromley and Altham for being too ridiculous, which is itself an element borrowed from both demonology and the greater mass of demonological works. The powers of the devil and his servants had limits, and they were not able to break the laws of nature. 
mirabila, or wonders, were possible, but miracula, or miracles, were only possible by the power of God. At least, that was the opinion of James, and so it was the opinion of the judges in Potts' description. The fourth we have already covered, image magic, and the use of wax and clay dolls of the victim. This was the Pendle witch's method of choice. According to the discovery, Old Demdike described her methods in a way that was, in the words of Pomfrey, very reminiscent of the demonology. The fifth parallel was of the extraordinary legal measures that were justified in being brought to bear in witchcraft trials. The crime itself was so heinous that otherwise unacceptable or questionable methods could be used to secure a conviction. The use of testimony from children and other suspects, the dunking of witches, and godly miracles. James argued in Demonology that, in cases of murder through magic, if the murderer touched the corpse, then it would bleed fresh blood. The Lancaster witches were not dunked, but Potts does recall that the said Janet Preston, coming to touch the dead corpses, they bled fresh blood presently, in the presence of all that were present, which hath ever been held a great argument to induce a jury to hold them guilty that shall be accused of murder. Further, the scepticism shown by the judges in the Psalmsbury cases. Even in demonology, James warned against judicial credulity. Potts repeatedly reminds the reader that Bromley and Altham had already shown they could be sceptical. There's no way they could have gotten in over their heads in Pendle. They threw the Salisbury case out for being too ridiculous. Salisbury is an interesting case for more than that reason. It showed that Potts and the judge's guiding work were aware of all the worries preoccupying James. Not just witches, but also Catholic plotters. Salisbury had fraudulent witchcraft accusations, but they were caused by those naughty papists. Effectively, the wonderful discovery showed that Lancashire was indeed the heartland of superstition Londoners believed it to be, but it had been purged of many of the satanic and Roman plotters infesting it. Before we leave the 1612 trials and the wonderful discovery, we should take a look at the role of Baron Thomas Nivet. Nivet was a courtier of James and one of the agents who physically arrested Guy Fawkes. Naturally, this made him the apple of the king's eye, and he was awarded with titles and gifts, the greatest, perhaps, being the Warden of the Mint, one of the chief financial officers of the realm. Nivet had the unenviable job of trying to find an ample source of money for the king. Worse still, in 1612, as we discussed last week, his patron, the Earl of Salisbury, died. This was terrible news. Court politics required a network of alliances to keep in favour, and Nivet had just lost his greatest one. So what does this have to do with Potts? Well, Potts was a client of Nivet, and undoubtedly the Baron found a way to boost his position in the pen of his man. Even if he played no role in the actual writing of the discovery, he could claim a certain amount of credit for a highly publicised work which vindicated James's own teachings in his demonology. Lancaster had played host to a trial that was an almost perfect replication of what the king warned of in 1597. But what makes Pumphrey, and myself, believe Nivet was more involved in the pamphlet than he might claim 
were the details of the Malkin Tower Sabbat. You may have been struck by how detailed and forthcoming young James' device had been. This was the meeting where the witches at Liberty discussed their plan to detonate a hoard of gunpowder to demolish the walls of Lancaster Castle, where their comrades were held and stage a jailbreak. Hmm, gunpowder. That seems somewhat familiar. Could it be, perhaps, that Nivet had pots insert this little detail to remind the king of his own brush with gunpowder that was foiled in part by Nivet's efforts? Now this is a stretch, and Pumphrey admits it to be so. Quote, The extent to which the wonderful discovery was a deliberate patronage ploy for turning potential metropolitan scepticism into royal favour remains conjectural. But one has to wonder, if this was an organic confession, or even less likely, a genuine plan to use gunpowder, where would the witches have gotten it from? It was a highly controlled substance that took the gunpowder plotters many weeks to accumulate, and that was in the trading hub of London. Once they got it, how would they get it to and into the castle? They'd need quite a bit, too. Lancaster Castle is, after all, a castle. It's in the name. It's designed to be tough. Now, Pumphrey concludes that it's much more reasonable that this scheme was either invented whole cloth by Noel and agreed to by a desperate James device, as was the case in many witchcraft confessions over the centuries, or otherwise embellished by Potts. So, what happened with Bromley and Altham? Were their propaganda efforts successful, their reputations enhanced and their careers advanced, or were the sceptical crowds of London enough to drown them in the king's displeasure? Well, the answer is, nothing much happened. They weren't significantly promoted, but neither were they demoted. It was a controversial and somewhat embarrassing event, but was otherwise ignored. The next case we'll look at today took place between 1613 and 1619, so a little ahead of Pax Britannica's narrative so far. In 1613, three folk healers, Joan, Margaret, and Philippa Flowers, were employed as servants in Beaver Castle for a visit of King James. However, the Flowers were not popular, and faced accusations of theft, leaving to all three being dismissed. Shortly after their dismissal, the Earl of Rutland and his wife the Countess fell ill, suffering from vomiting and convulsions. The Lord and Lady survived this brush with illness, but their family was not so lucky. Their eldest, but still very young, son, Henry, succumbed to their sickness and died, while the illness ravaged their surviving son and daughter. So you may assume that, because of the connection between this family of herbal healers being fired, and the inconvenient sickness and death of the Rutland scion, that the Earl and Countess immediately took lay the blame for his death on the flowers and you would be incorrect. It took five years, seemingly spurred on by the death of their remaining son, Francis. Just before Christmas 1618, the flowers were arrested on the order of the Earl of Rutland. After being examined, the flowers were transferred to Lincoln Jail. En route, it is reported that Joan Flowers, the mother of Philippa and Margaret, was vocal in pleading her innocence, volunteering all manner of things to prove that she was a good Christian. At one point, she asked for a piece of bread to substitute for the Eucharist, where the blood and wine are consumed, 
either representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ or actually becoming the body and blood of Jesus Christ, depending on your denomination. Joan argued, with unfortunate vigour, that bread considered to be so holy as to represent the body of Christ could not be eaten by anyone evil, and certainly not a witch. Why was it unfortunate that she argued her case so well? Well, Joan was given some bread, and when Joan tried to eat it, she choked to death on it. That was obviously not good news for Joan, but also for her children. Once Margaret and Philippa made it to Lincoln, they were questioned about their role in the deaths of the Rutland children. Eventually, both women confessed. They had communed with spirits and familiars, who had helped them with their evil works. The mother, the murdered-by-carbs Joan Flowers, had a familiar in the form of a cat called Ruttekin, who played a central role in their testimony. Joan stole the glove of the Earl of Rutland, who dipped it in water, stroked it along Ruttekin's back, and needled it while chanting incantations. This brought about the illness that claimed the life of Henry, the Earl's heir, but the same could not be done to the Rutland daughter, because Ruttekin turned out to have no power over her. The women also confessed to having taken feathers from the bed of the Earl and Countess, and cast a spell that prevented them from having any more children. As it happens, after the deaths of his sons, the Earl would die without an heir, his titles passing to his brother. During their examinations, the Flowers denounced three other women as their accomplices, who were subsequently arrested and themselves examined. The interrogators found their confessions. They all confessed to receiving visions and consorting with spirits, much like the Flowers, although one confessed to using these spirits to murder her enemies. The Flowers were both found guilty of witchcraft and executed at Lincoln Castle in 1619, and the fate of their supposed accomplices is a mystery. The Rutlands remained convinced that they had been the victims of sorcery, so much that it was inscribed on a monument lamenting the deaths of their, quote, two sons, both of which died in their infancy by wicked practices and sorcery. What's unusual about this case is the confession that the Flowers had cast a spell to stop the Earl of Rutland having any more children with his wife. On its own, this isn't particularly unusual. Fertility spells and curses are commonly seen in trials across Europe, but never in England. This is the first time I've heard of such a claim in an English trial, and it may well be an indication of the extent of the exchange between continental and British demonological thought, as well as between the witch beliefs of the commons and the elite magistrates. In between the death of Henry Manners in 1612 and the trial of his supposed killers in 1618-1619, to there was another trial of witches in Leicester that is worth covering. Not because of its body count, with nine witches being hanged, but in its political fallout. On the 16th of July, 1616, nine women were executed at the gallows, based on the accusation of a 12-year-old boy named Smith. Details are somewhat scarce, but Smith seems to have blamed these women for a series of afflictions which made him dance around in public making animal noises. The women were arrested, tried, and found guilty by the judges, Sir Randolph Crewe and Sir Humphrey Winch, and sentenced to death. Well, that's all sorted, they may have thought, patting themselves on the back. Only it wasn't all sorted, not in the slightest. 
This is, after all, only a few years after the Lancaster trials, with their execution of ten people. That had become national talk, and so too did this, to the extent that James himself dropped by a few weeks later after the women were cut down from the rope. I don't know whether James had planned to visit Leicester anyway, or if it was specifically for this reason, but while he was in the city, he had the young boy brought to him. Much like with the trial of Anne Gunter, James was interested in proving his scholarly worth, and so questioned Smith himself. In the words of Francis Osborne, James quickly, quote, discovered a fallacy, end quote. The boy's testimony fell apart, and he admitted that he had invented his afflictions. Unlike with the Gunter case, James's intervention had not come soon enough. Nine women, innocent women, had been judicially murdered by James's agents, and he was not amused. The judges were reprimanded for their credulity, and others were warned, again in the words of Osborne, to be circumspect in condemning those committed by ignorant justices for diabolical compacts. To what extent Crewe and Winch were punished is unclear. Crewe was certainly unfazed. He remained welcome at court and kept powerful company. While Winch may have been less fortunate with his career, he still lived another nine years and died well off, so it's unlikely that his reputation was fatally damaged by this bloody blunder. The question is, though, what James would have thought if he had questioned Janet Device? the child source of the testimony that took many of the Pendle witches to the gallows. Perhaps he would have agreed with the judges, but I have to expect that, based on his scepticism of child witnesses in both 1605 and 1616, that he would be just as incredulous in 1612. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode. It's been a much longer episode than usual, but then again, it is a combination of scripts, so that makes sense. Remember that Pax Britannica is on Twitter and Facebook if you want to keep up with the show. Thank you to my House of Lords. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. The Royal Headsman, executed today. The Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion. The Right Honourable, Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence. The Right Honourable, Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo. The Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens the Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, and the Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. If you want to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free RSS feed, which you can put into any podcatcher. Alternatively, if you want to support Pax Britannica, but don't want to spend any money, which I understand, recommend it to a friend, or share it on Reddit, Facebook, or Twitter. Remember that you can get in touch with me through those latter two, or by emailing me at podbritannica at gmail.com. Finally, thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.